listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. So last week we said that we would be going into a brand new series in the book of Ephesians. And so that is what we're going to do today. And here's what I wonder. I also said, I also said, hey, let's make this a bring your Bible, bring your Bible series. So if you've got your paper copy of the Bible, I'm going to turn around. I'm not going to watch because I don't want you to think I'm not holding my because I, so I'm going to turn around. I'm going to look this way. If you brought your paper copy of the Bible, hold it up so that, well, I can't see it, but you hold it. Okay. You put it down. So you say, why the big deal? Well, it's, you know, it's not really all that big a deal, but it's just kind of a big deal to me because here's what I think. I think that Christians have become so used to these that, that it just becomes commonplace to us, you know, and, and there's not a thing wrong with the Bible being on the phone. In fact, we put it out there for you to follow along with. I mean, so it's like we're encouraging the thing and we are to some degree, but I think we can just get so flippant about God's Word because it's just a part of where we, you know, also post stylized pictures of ourselves for others to in awe over, you know? And I just am thinking, well, if we would just maybe take a minute to find our Bible, maybe that would be an encouragement to us to remember just how important it is and our walk with Jesus. So if you got it, I would encourage you to bring it. We also threw out the, uh, the, uh, the idea that maybe this series could be where we just, we go, okay, starting in Ephesians, and unless I'm sick, and just for the disclaimer, yes, if you're sick, please don't bring it. Now, we get it. That's it's, it's health reasons, and, and so we understand that. Uh, but otherwise, unless I'm sick or traveling, I'm going to be there for the entire series of Ephesians. So I want to tell you, congratulations, you're going to make it, or the possibility is true that you're going to make it. I want to encourage you to be here every week that you can. So as we get into this book of Ephesians, I want to get a little bit of background so that you'll know kind of where we're headed. And there have been times when I've done a lot of background, and I think some of you like it and some of you don't. And there's been times when I've done a little bit of background, and I hear, well, I, why didn't you talk more about that? So I don't know where to fall on this. I just do know that Google works, and anything more about this book you won't find out. There's plenty of information, and I've got all kinds of books I'll share with you. But let me give you a few things as we start looking at this book of Ephesians. First of all, the author is Paul the Apostle. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, in the scholarly world, there is a little bit of debate as to whether or not Paul is the author or not. I personally don't think that it is a well-founded argument, and most conservative scholars hold to the fact that it is indeed Paul who is the writer of Ephesians. He wrote this particular work in A.D. 60 to 62. So 62 years into the first century is when Paul wrote this particular work, and he did it, most believe, from house arrest in Rome. Now, let me give you a little bit of a, 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 little bit of a background history so that when you're reading Acts, you might understand uh, exactly what it is, that how these things coincide, because Paul had spent some time 
in Ephesus prior to his writing this particular work. In fact, he went on his second missionary journey. As he left and went, he was hoping to go into the region where Ephesus lay, but God didn't allow him. In fact, Acts tells us that God didn't allow him to go south or north, that, that, that the Holy Spirit was prohibiting him taking the gospel to the places he wanted to take the gospel. And that may cause us to go, well, now, wait a minute, I thought that's what Jesus called us to do. He did. But Jesus also allowed Paul to see a vision of a man in Macedonia, which is modern-day Europe, Greece. He allowed Paul, uh, Paul and his party to, to hear this call from Macedonia for the gospel to be brought to them. It's what's called the Macedonian call. And so Paul got up and said, guys, I know why we can't go north. I know why we can't go south because God wants us to go across the Aegean Sea into what we know as Europe, into Greece. He wants us to take the gospel there. And so that's exactly what he did. He crossed and he entered into the cities of Philippi. He entered into the cities of Thessalonica, into the city of Athens, and then he spent some time in the city of Corinth. On his way back to his home church in Syria, he leaves that particular uh, place and he makes a stop in what is uh, now modern-day Ephesus. Thank you very much for putting that up. Ephesus is going to be right here in the western corner of what is modern-day Turkey. All of this region right here is modern-day Turkey, and here we find Ephesus. So as they're traveling, they get here, they want to go south, they want to go north. God said, no, you're to go here in through Macedonia, which all of this is modern-day Greece. But on the way back, they stop in the city of Ephesus on their way back home to their home church. And so Paul enters into the synagogues and starts preaching and really things start popping. I mean, folks are hearing the message and people are getting excited about the gospel. But Paul's headed home. He needs to go home. He needs to regroup. And so he leaves some companions there in Ephesus and he said, folks, I'm coming back. It was all Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'll be back before Arnold ever said it. He said, I've got to go back home. I've got to regroup. Probably I've got to get some more funds. I've got to get some more stuff and, and, and just get, get reorganized, and I'll be back. And that's exactly what he did on his third missionary journey. He went to Ephesus, and he spent about two and a half, three years in Ephesus ministering. He left from there, came back around, and before he ever got to see them again, he was arrested in Jerusalem and placed in jail where he would stay for a good four to five years. Now, maybe Paul saw them again, but it's during this time in jail that he writes back to those that he ministered to for almost three years. So these people in Ephesus who are the recipients, Christians in the city of Ephesus, these are folks who knew Paul. These are folks who had spent a pretty good deal of time with Paul ministering directly and teaching them in ways that he had not done in other cities. So Paul writes this letter to the Christians at Ephesus while he's in jail, most believe, in Rome. 
Now, this letter that he writes is a typical Greco-Roman letter. It has all of the staples of an ancient Greek letter. It has an opening with a greeting. It has a body, and it has a conclusion, a very typical letter. But what Paul has to say, we know, has been superintended by the Holy Spirit to not only speak to those who are in Ephesus, but to speak truth to us today through the vehicle of inspiration. And so Paul, sitting and writing his heart to the Ephesian believers, was being overseen by God to speak truth not only to them, but to all who would hear, all who would read. What was the purpose of this particular letter? Well, the purpose was to encourage the believers, I believe. He's been away from them. He's been, he, he's been jailed because of the faith. No doubt, they're hearing all of these things that are happening to this follower of Jesus. And now he's being uh, rounded up and going to Rome because of the faith of which they have believed. And so I believe that Paul is writing to encourage the Christians who are there and to remind them of what their life is defined as in Christ, and then also to call them to Christ-fueled lives. Who are we in Christ, and then how are we to conduct ourselves because we're in Christ? So that's how we're going to break the series up into two parts, chapters 1 through 3, who we are in Christ, and then chapters 4 through 6, how Christ wants to live through us. Because we're in him, how are we then to conduct ourselves accordingly? Let me tell you a little bit about Ephesus. Has a long history. Has a, has a, uh, a long history of cosmopolitan. It has a long history of, of uh, religious activity. It, it, it's a, it, it became a very a very prominent place in the Greek and Roman world. And this particular city at the time of Paul's writing probably had around 250 to 350,000 people living there. And at that time, it was likely the fourth largest city in the known world. And it was a port city, so it was very important to trade routes between Rome and the Far East. And so Ephesus was a very, very commercially minded city, but it also had a long history of pagan religion. From its very early days when it began to be, when it began to become a civilized city, buildings began to be made from a very early time and, and as far back in my reading as even 1000 BC, the religion of Artemis worship was prominent. You say, well, well, who is Artemis? That's a good question. In the Greek pantheon of gods where Zeus and Apollo and Hades, and you get all of those folks that you remember from your Greek mythology classes, Artemis was the goddess of the woods, if you will. The, not, the, not the goddess of fertility that a lot of folks think, but the, the goddess of, of the land. And so it, Ephesus became this central point of the worship 
of Artemis. In about 547 BC, a temple to Artemis was built. I think I made, there it is. Temple to Artemis was built. And this particular structure, not the original, but the, the reconstruction after fire became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And, and as I was reading about this particular temple and seeing its dimensions, I, I was waiting on my boys to come out of the field house over there in Winterhaven, you know, the, the new basketball arena that's like the size of what looks like about two football fields. And I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm reading about the temple to Artemis. And I'm kind of looking up. I'm like, kind of probably looked a little bit like this, this monstrosity of a building that took cranes and it took many man hours of work just to put that up i can't imagine what this took and all of its ornate detail ephesus not only had this magnificent temple it was known and 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 here's something that i that i discovered in my reading ephesus became what was known as the warden city of artemis worship doesn't mean that that's the only place that this goddess was worshiped but it meant if you want to go to the place where artemis is the most pleased where her activity is the most realized then go to ephesus well of course we know that that's all fake deities there are no greek and roman gods but nevertheless this city was steeped in the worship Diana. So much so that while Paul was in Ephesus for two and a half, close to three years, so many people began to come to know Christ as Savior that the silversmith trade began to grumble because their business was going down. Fewer people were buying little silver idols of Artemis and their economy was tanking so much so that the leader of the trades of silversmiths named Demetrius you can read this in Acts chapter 19 Demetrius stirred up a riot in Ephesus and said this Paul is preaching this this stuff about this Jesus and it's hurting our business and it ultimately caused Paul to have to leave and then not see them again until possibly even after his uh, imprisonment at this time but so Ephesus, while very prominent in the worship of Artemis, the gospel had taken hold and people were being saved and it was stirring up a ruckus. Well, now Paul's been gone for a few years and it makes perfect sense why he would write back to encourage them to remember in the face of political, commercial, and religious opposition, remember who you are in Christ remember what you have in him and and then remember how you're to conduct yourself even in this contrary climate in Christ remember how we are to live and allow his life to live through us so that's the book that we have that's the letter that we have and today I just want to look at two verses just the typical greeting if we can as Paul opens it up, and, 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 and this is very common to all of his letters, and so probably anytime we preach through any one of Paul's letters, we'll spend a little bit of time on the greeting. For the hearers, it was very normal. 
because a Greek letter had an opening, just like your letters have an opening if you still write them. Even your emails have openings, dear, or whatever you're saying, you know, hey, Charlene, comma, it's a greeting. Texts don't have that. A lot of times texts don't have words. My kids get mad at me for even using punctuation, so we've lost a lot in the last decade. The opening that was very common in his world has a divine aspect to it because it was overseen by God, filled with things for us to see and glean. And we want to talk about just a few of them this morning. So if you have your Bibles, if you got your U version out, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God, help us today as we look to your word. Help us not to say any more than you intend, but God, help us not to leave out that that you intend for us to hear and know. Encourage us today. I pray that you will help us to see you more clearly and to begin to see who we are in your eyes because of who we are in Christ. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. All right, let's look first. The sender. Paul identifies himself as the author, but then he makes another statement. He says, Paul, an apostle. He says that most of the time in his openings. Paul, an apostle. Some of the time, a a few times, he says, Paul, a servant, or Paul, a prisoner. But most of the time, he says, Paul, an apostle. This word means sent one. It it really began as a word to be used in the realm of shipping. It had to do with the idea of shipping something from one place to another. Even in the, in, in the arena of the documents that were needed, the bills of lading that would go from one place to another, identifying that it was intended from here to there. And then that word began to be used in a, in a very select way as it referred to delegates who were chosen and sent on a particular mission. It's used in the New Testament in a, in a very select way as it's referring to a particular group of people who were sent by Jesus specifically for a purpose. And I think what Paul is saying is, is that I'm an apostle. But as we learn in his other letters, he recognizes that he's not one of the 12, or should I say one of the 11 minus Judas plus Matthias. I'm not one of the ones who was with Jesus. In fact, I'm one of the ones who tried to stomp out the way of Christ. But I met Jesus on a road to Damascus, and for whatever reason, he chose the A number one terroristic individual trying to stop Christianity. He picked the Osama bin Laden of opposition and changed him. He changed him from a terrorist to a preacher. So Paul says, I'm an apostle. But other places, he says, but I get 
that I'm not one of the original chosen. In fact, I'm the odd bird. I'm the one. Why in the world would Jesus choose me? But he did. I'm an official delegate owned by Jesus and sent by him to propagate his message. And Paul took his role very seriously. In fact, in Corinthians, he says, I've gone through beatings. I've gone through uh, exposure. I've been shipwrecked. I've been kicked out. I've been threatened. A couple times I've been left for dead. Why? Because Jesus called me and told me to go tell others about him. Paul, an apostle, owned and sent by Jesus. But notice what he says. By the will of God. I think Paul is saying, as he has so commonly said, I'm an apostle, but it's not anything I would have chosen. I don't think Paul would have ever in a thousand years thought he would be doing what he's doing as he's writing this letter to this group of people. In all of his life would he have ever thought I would be sitting in Rome under house arrest for the cause of Jesus that I was intent on destroying. And now I am one of the leaders in the communication of this message. Paul says, I'm an apostle by the will of God. I think that's so important, him recognizing that what he was doing was in fact the intention, the wish, the will, the resolve of God to do this in his life. Here's a question. I wonder if we were to just on a legal pad, just write all of the things in our life that we're involved with, all the things that we can that we would describe ourselves. You know, Kevin, the the pastor of Oasis, the owner of a home on, on uh, uh, Brandy Chase Boulevard, the, the driver of a Honda and a Ford, the, you know, the, the subscriber to Bright House Cable, the, you know, the, the player of drums, the, you know, whatever. If we were to write down, I wonder how many of those things that we could off to the side write by the will of God. And how many of those things we would have to write because I really like it? Because I wanted to. You know, Kevin, the whatever. Because I wanted to do that, period. I just wonder how much of our life that we could say, this is what I am because this is what God willed. Because this is what God wanted. And I don't know that Paul was intending that with his grace. In fact, I think Paul was just writing a very rich I think he was I think he was taking advantage to remind them that I know what I am, but I want you to know why I am what I am. It's because God wanted it. I would have never wanted it, but he did, and I'm all in, and I want everybody to know it. And I just wonder how much of our life is because God willed and not because we will. His conversion, his call were all because of God. Because God chose him. One who didn't deserve it. One who deserved a smack in the face from God. You ever felt that way? You ever felt like I have no reason to be loved by him? There's no reason why God should have in his grace 
called me and, and welcomed me into his family. Because no, I have nothing whatsoever to offer him. Well, we're in good company. Because Mr. Paul says the same thing. I'm an apostle because God wanted me. Not because I wanted it, but out of his grace. So we see the sender, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And then we see the recipients to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. To the saints. These are people who are set apart from God because they are followers of Jesus. Now, when we think about the word saint, we think about it in one of two fashions in our culture, in our time. We think about those that, uh, that have been deemed a saint by the Catholic Church because of some work that they did or some incredible thing that happened through them. And so the church says, well, they're a saint. Or we think about it in terms of when we're talking about our granny and we say, boy, my granny, she sure was a saint. Because what we're, what we're describing is the worth of someone because of their work. Because of what they've done, they just get a classification that, well, we all know we're not saintly. Oh, listen, we go to bed with us every night. We know what we are. But those folks, they're on a higher plane. They're just a saint. And Paul says, no, I'm writing this to all the saints who are in Ephesus. And I think Paul was writing specifically to those folks in Ephesus, but no doubt he knew that that letter was going to be handed. Hey, have you read Paul's letter to the Ephesians? You need to read that. And I don't think Paul would go, no, 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 no. Don't give it to them. They're not saints. I don't want them to think, no. What Paul is saying is true for all of us because God superintended it and we got it today in 2020. And God wants us to hear this word. If you know Jesus as Savior, you're a saint. And you're feeling the heart push back on that going, I don't think I need to be called that. Maybe because of the wrestle that you have like I have with sin in your life. And you think, I don't deserve, remember, we don't deserve anything. What does this word saint mean? It means set apart as holy. Now, in the Old Testament, the, the, the word that is, that is in the Greek New Testament, when that Greek word is used in the Hebrew Old Testament through the translation known as the Septuagint, and sometimes you'll see that referred to through the letters LXX, that's referring to the Hebrew Old Testament translated into Greek. When this word that's, that's come about to be used as saint in the New Testament, when it's used in the Old Testament, it refers often to things that are prepared to come into contact with a deity. Like the temple would be considered holy because it is the place that God is willing to come and meet with his people. A sacrifice would be considered holy because God is going to accept that sacrifice. He can come into contact with it because it's been set apart. A vessel can be cleaned and cleansed so that in the ceremony of sacrifice, it is acceptable and God will come into contact, if you will, with that thing because it's been set apart. Now, 
The people in the Old Testament weren't seen as saints because they needed the sacrifice to cover their sin. But with the advent of Jesus through his death and resurrection, we no longer have to offer bulls and goats and and cattle and sheep anymore because we have one sacrifice who's died once for all for sin and has dealt with sin for the follower, for the believer, for the one who has placed their faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. And so what we have become as a result of what Jesus has done is set apart for God, by God. Does that make sense? So you're not a saint because of what you do. You're not a saint if you're a follower of Jesus because of all the good works that you've done and have elevated to that status. You're a saint because of what God has done for you and to you through the death and resurrection of Jesus. His righteousness has passed from him to us as our sin passed to him and was dealt with on the cross. Now we are saints. Now how does that hit you? Probably hard because you think, I don't act like a saint. That's okay. I mean, it's not okay. It's okay you think that because when we get to chapter number four, we'll start talking about how God wants us to act. But not before we get it good and straight in our mind just who we are in Jesus. So if you know Jesus as your Savior, you are right with him because of what he has done for you. He says to the saints, to the ones made holy, having no holiness of their own. And then he goes on. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Faithful in Christ. One author that I'm reading behind says that the way this is constructed, he believes that what Paul is trying to communicate is those who are saints who are believers in Christ. The idea is that they have by faith trusted Christ and they have remained faithful to Christ. You know, we come into contact with folks who say, I'm a Christian, and for a little while, they'll say, I'm a follower of Jesus. And then the next thing you know, they're just, they're just gone. And you know, they're not involved in any, they don't even, like they might claim Jesus or they might just change their mind entirely. And you say, well, well Pastor Kevin, what, what's going on there? Were they Christians and they lost it or were they never Christians? And Look, here's what I don't know. I don't know how all that works because I'm not God. But here's what I do know. God knows all those who are his. And here's the thing. Paul's going, I'm not not saying that everyone who's ever gathered with the church are saints. I'm saying I'm writing to the saints, those who are followers of Jesus and those who are still following Jesus. Those who are still faithful, those who have by faith trusted him and are still following him. That's who I'm writing to. Now, I know that hits us, and we say, am I being very faithful to Jesus? Well, maybe not in your actions, but again, hold on. In a few weeks, probably months, but in a few weeks, we'll get to chapter 4. We'll get to chapter 5. Right now, let me ask you this question. Who is Jesus in your heart and mind? 
Have you remained faithful to who he is and what he's done? Then Paul's trying to remind you who you are. And part of you realizing that you might have baggage that needs to be dealt with is this better understanding of who you actually are. So that as you come to a better understanding of who and what you are, you'll be able to turn around and go, well, it's not about me not doing that so I can be this. It's about because I'm here, because I'm what God said, I got no place for that. That has no room in my life because of what and who I am in Jesus. And Paul says, I'm an apostle by the will of God and I'm talking to the saints, the ones who have by faith trusted Jesus and are faithfully claiming him. Is that you today? I hope it is. If it's not, I've got some quote unquote good news, which is actually how the Greek word is translated for gospel, that Jesus loved you and died for you and took your sin on himself, was crucified, buried, and raised so that you too might be forgiven, made whole, and seen by God as holy because he said so. If by faith you'll trust Jesus. But let's move on. We see the sender, Paul an apostle, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And then we see the greeting which is very common. In fact, of the 13 letters that Paul writes, he uses this exact same greeting nine out of the 13 times. And in the other uh, four instances, he still includes this and just adds some different wording. So you could say, but the, the nuts and bolts are there every letter we have. Yep, he gives these two words sometimes adding sometimes changing some things around but here's what he says as he opens grace to you and peace from God our father and the Lord Jesus Christ grace to you would have been stated in Greek in one word and that Greek word is charis can you say that with me charis that is the Greek for grace you say, well, why do you say that? Well, because it's interesting. The typical Greek greeting was kere. Kere, which means rejoice, or it would be similar to us going, hey, how you doing? It's rejoice. It's a, it, it, it can be even thought of in terms of, I hope you're doing well. Hey, how are you doing? I hope you're doing good. It's the idea of, of, of rejoicing or the hope of joy in your life, the hope that you have found some kind of favor somewhere and things are going good. That's what the Greek kere means. What Paul has done is adopted a similar sounding word, which is charis, grace. But I think he does that very intently because what is grace it is favor that is extended but not deserved. It is favor that is given not by chance. It is favor that is extended but not deserved. For instance, you teachers who have 
students, and you know how there's often one or two in the classroom who just rub you the wrong way. They just are going to do that all year long. And then you do things in your class around holiday times and around, you know, times of, uh, of special occasions and you're passing out stuff and you're putting it on, you're putting it on their desk and you're like, she's so nice. I'm glad I want to give you two, but I'm not because that wouldn't be fair. And I'm going to give you one too. And, and you know what? You try real hard. I'm going to give you one. And then you get to this one. And it's just like, I want to spank you. That's what I want to do. <laughs> Every day I see you, I want to spank you. And uh, yes, you deserve it. But I'm going to give you one too. You know what that is? That's grace. That's like, you don't deserve In fact, I need to go, uh, no. And I need to, because you don't. Now, in God's economy, Nobody deserves what God gives. But the idea of grace is you don't deserve it. What you deserve is from the other direction. But I'm going to smile and I'm going to give you one too. Out of grace. Listen, God's grace, the favor that he extends that's undeserved, is extended to an enemy. And it's not extended with gritting of teeth. God doesn't go... Well, all right, I'm going to save them, but I sure don't want to because they just, they have been so rotten. And what I want to do is destroy them. No, that's not how God works. In God's great grace, he extends through love what is undeserved with a willing and desiring heart to see this transformed. And he extends what is not deserved. The Greek world says, I hope things are going good. How you doing? Paul says, God has given grace. And it's yours, saints. God's, undes uh, God's favor given to those who don't deserve it. It's ready and it's available and it's yours those who know Christ, those who are faithfully claiming and following him, that grace to you. But not only grace, as he took a common Greek greeting and tweaked it just a little, he adds the common, most common Hebrew greeting. Not just grace to you, but peace. Shalom is that most common Hebrew greeting. The Hebrews see one another and they say peace to one another. And what they are saying is the peace of Yahweh that he's promised to his people, may it be yours. The peace of God that he's promised, the peace of God that we're waiting for, the peace of God that's coming through Messiah when he's coming is your brother. Peace. You see, I think Paul was very intent on that Greek Gentile world and that Hebrew Jewish world recognizing in his greetings, grace is yours and so is peace. This peace with God, this peace 
of God with each other. And who are we waiting to bring that peace? None other than Messiah. But for the Hebrews in Paul's day, and for many of the Jews in ours, they're still looking. They're still waiting. And what Paul says is grace. Saint, follower of Jesus, the grace of God is yours. And the peace of God is yours. Well, how is that possible? He tells it. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Not I hope things are going well for you, Stephen, but grace is yours, brother, from God the Father. Oh, and peace is yours through the Lord Jesus Christ. Not I hope you experience grace. Boy, I hope that you one day know peace, but grace is yours. Peace is yours through God, not the distant deity who has, you know, no real intimate connection to his creation. He just stands back and in his power and thunderbolts and all that, he's just God and you're cowering. No, grace and peace from God, our Abba, our Daddy. Our Father. We sing that song, Good, Good Father. It's who you are. It's who he is. And Paul goes, look, I, I, I want you to know exactly who you are in Christ. And from the get-go, I want you to know that I am who I am because of the will of God, and so are you. But you're saints because of the will of God by faith in Jesus and grace is yours, and grace is yours, and grace is yours, and grace is yours, and peace is yours. The peace that nobody gets, even when everything's falling around, it's yours. Through our Father, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and through one Lord, and his name is Jesus, Messiah. One Savior. Paul connects the grace that God extends and the peace that he has promised and supplied in the person and work of Messiah Jesus. Only Jesus is Lord. Only Jesus has authority. Only Jesus has power. Not Zeus, not Artemis, not Caesar only Jesus. And it's yours, saint. It's yours, believer. So here's my statement. Having heard what Paul has said, here's my concluding statement. Saints, believers in Winter Haven and wherever they may be listening online, God's grace and peace is yours today in Jesus. For whatever is broken, God's grace and peace are yours in Jesus. For whatever has you frustrated, Christian, God's grace 
and peace is yours in Jesus. For whatever is unknown, God's grace and peace is yours in Jesus. For whatever has you overwhelmed, God's grace is yours. God's peace is yours through Jesus. And whatever decision you have to make, God's favor, God's grace is yours. God's peace beyond your ability to understand is yours in Jesus. For basically whatever, God extends grace, his favor. You say, Pastor Kevin, I'm only a ninth grader. God's grace, God's favor is on you, Aiden. It's yours. God knows you and loves you. And the peace that you need, even though the circumstances don't change, they're not bothering Jesus, and he's for you. God's grace is yours, and God's peace is yours for whatever. Connie. For whatever. And, and, and you might not even know the answer tomorrow of the question you're asking today, but here's what I can say. In Jesus, God's grace, his favor, you don't deserve it, neither do I. It's yours. His peace is yours. And here's what I think, Tamara, I don't know. I don't have the answer. But God's grace is yours. God's peace is yours. And you're going, don't call on me. That's okay. <laughs> My point is, I think what Paul is saying is, as he's begin, beginning to tell us who we are in Christ is, hey, won't, won't we walk in that grace? Why, why, don't we, why don't we look at what's before us through the lens of that grace? That favor that God has for us, that if we'll just simply... Allow him in his grace. He'll, he'll, keep that, he'll keep that hand waving that we can keep walking toward him. And we know that his grace is for us. And even though the viruses come and the economies change and the elections happen, we're at peace. Why? Because we know who we've believed. We're persuaded that he's able to keep what I've committed to him to the day he returns. So Christian, God's grace, God's peace, it's yours in Jesus. Now, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, then all you know is turmoil. All you know is frustration and aggravation. But you can walk in that grace, you can walk in that peace, through the submission of the will. God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself no matter how hard I try. But I believe that you, in the person of Jesus, made it possible for me to be forgiven, set free from sin, and be your child, be an ambassador of your son, be a saint, even though I'm not a saint. I want to trust what Jesus did for me. I trust that through him, you'll change me. And that like Paul, you'll use me by your will.
I trust Jesus. I take him. I confess him as my Lord and Savior. Romans tells us, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And immediately, grace is yours and peace. Through our Father God and our Lord God the Son. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We lift him up today. God, we call it what he calls it. The only way, the only truth, the only life, the only means to access you, God, is through Jesus. By faith alone in his work alone. God, help us to recognize that in your eyes, we are saints. We are chosen, forgiven, set free. The recipients of grace, the owners of peace. As we begin to learn more about who we are in Christ, may we walk in the reality of what you have already said through a simple, common greeting. May that truth captivate us for the rest of the week we come back and continue on our journey. Father, I pray that you'll draw those who need to know Jesus as Savior. May they see that he's the only way and may they want him as their Savior and Lord. We look forward to what you're going to do. We thank you and we trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, 